0: From 11FS, this is FinTech Insider News. This week, we bring you Killer Mike launches a new digital bank and receives tens of thousands of account requests on the first day. Klarna faces backlash after sending marketing emails to non customers. And Square invests $50 million in Bitcoin. All this and more on today's show. The banking business model is broken. The question is how can we rebuild it? Embedded finance presents a massive opportunity for banks to play a new role in the financial services ecosystem, offering more revenue streams, lower costs, and higher margins. Our new report, Better Banking Business Models, Embedded Finance, and the Path to Growth, is a must-read for banks considering the smartest next step. Head to bit.ly forward slash banking as a service to download the report for free. That's bit.ly forward slash banking as a service. That's all one word. It's all lowercase, folks. Okay, let's get started with today's show. Welcome to episode 471 of Fintech Insider. I'm Sam Mall, and today I'm joined by my colleague and co-host for today, Kate Moody. Kate, how is lovely Hampshire today?
1: It's good. It's nice. It's very quiet. I've temporarily escaped from London before we go back into sort of mini lockdown this weekend. So, yeah, enjoying enjoying life once again.
0: I would love to temporarily escape Florida, but it seems like I will be here forever and for everyone that is curious kate and i share a love of owls which we will explain much (laughs) much later do we not kate i was wondering
1: i was wondering when you were going to fit that in and you've just gone straight for it in the the first minute of the show great well done yeah
0: it was in my notes all right and as is normal we are joined remotely by some awesome guests today first making her fintech insider news debut we have alice tapper the founder and author of go fund yourself hey alice welcome to the show how are you
2: Hello. Very good. Thank you for having me.
0: And I'm assuming you are in lovely London.
2: I am in lovely London and in true London fashion, it's raining. And would this be a, a British podcast if I didn't mention the weather?
0: No, not whatsoever. <laughs> I was going to ask. We were going to go there. And also the thing I love, you're an author. So congrats on that. Thank I know you. how tough that is. Do you mind talking just a real quick overview of, um, you know, Yourself, what it is you do, if you don't mind.
2: Yeah, sure. So... Yeah, I mean, I'm a fin- I'm two things, I guess. I'm a financial campaigner, but I also run a financial news and education platform called GoFundYourself, which is largely kind of Instagram based. We also have a website. And as you said, it's a book, which is basically trying to make financial news and what's going on in the economy and personal finance um, not boring and making it relatable and relevant to young people.
0: I always, always admire anybody who has the wherewithal to sit down and write a book. I have to be honest, because that is not me whatsoever. I wish I could. I love reading them. I just don't have the discipline, flat out. Yeah. Yeah, Kate knows that. I'm Kate's nodding, lie. everybody. Yeah, on the Zoom call, Kate is nodding and laughing at that comment. That's really sad. <laughs> and also making her FinTech Insider debut is Guerra Kiwana. She's the Ops Analyst at 11FS. She was formerly the Financial Crimes Ops Manager at Monzo and one of my favorite people to chat to on Slack. And in Jamaica, are you not?
3: Uh, yeah, I'm currently in Kingston, Jamaica, uh, visiting family. Everything is uh, COVID kosher, I, I should I should add.
0: COVID kosher. I love that. I'm in Florida, and everything is COVID. That's it. <laughs> everything is COVID, period. All right, with that, let's jump in and let's get started. So our first story, and man, I love this story. Uh, this one's going to be fun to talk about. Killer Mike's new black-owned bank receives tens of thousands of account requests in less than 24 hours. This story comes from CNN. So new majority black and Latino-owned and operated digital bank hopes to make supporting Black-owned banks and businesses a little easier for consumers. The bank, lovingly titled Greenwood, and we'll dive into what that name mean, means, was created by Bounce TV founder Ryan Glover and his close friend, rapper, activist, Michael Killer, Mike Render. Also heavily involved as an advisor, as ambassador, and former Atlanta mayor, Andrew Young, and his son, Bo Young. Greenwood's target audiences are Black and Latino communities and anyone else who wants to support Black-owned businesses. The leadership team at Greenwood unveiled the new platform on Thursday after raising more than $3 million in seed funding this past June. Glover said that he worked at Greenwood since early 2019, but the interest spike after the police killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis sparked many Americans to support Black-owned businesses and financial institutions. The bank opens in January of 2021, but launched its website on Thursday, the 7th of October, and there's a waiting list in place for those who want to open a Greed One account. As of, I think, October 12th, the waiting list was well over 70,000 individuals, according to an article in Forbes. So, um, and by the way, um, our producer, Laura Watkins, is talking to the team at Greenwood. We will definitely have them on a future podcast, and I'm thrilled about that. So um, we do have a massive fan of Killer Mike, believe it or not. As part of this, you want to give your opinion on this story?
3: Yeah. um, Yeah. So Killer Mike, I I think I I can give my opinion with two different hats on. And I'll start with with my Killer Mike fan um, and as an activist uh, hat on as well. Um, So Killer Mike, brilliant person, um, really, you know, abrasive individual. He's definitely rubbed up against a lot of different people in different spaces. um, And, you know, if you you take the time to watch, he's got a Netflix uh, documentary out as well. Uh, he's been pretty vocal and active and he's a uh, n- very noted best friend of Bernie Sanders as well. Um, so this news is really cool and, and exciting and definitely um, at a time and during this year where we've had a little bit more visibility uh, for um, issues uh, around, around oppression of marginalized communities. This is huge. Uh, this is, you know, like a, another black bank. There's only, I believe, under 40 right now in the States, um, black owned specifically. Uh, so this, you know, adding one more is is you know pretty pretty huge news, especially uh, as we understand the regulatory environment in the states is you know not conducive to new banks popping up. Um, I'll put on my fintech hat as well, uh, which is a little more critical. Um, so I, you know, as much as I'm excited about this this news. Uh, doesn't quite have much context behind it from from a, you know, fintech banking perspective. You know, it's really tough to understand uh, how they're launching and how are they on their own charter? Are they going to be piggybacking on, you know, a Sutton, for example, Uh, this, this is not in, this is not anywhere on the website and I'm a little fuzzy, but I believe um, it is required that this kind of disclosure is required to be made. They, I also noticed they're not FDIC um, insured. So, you know, the bank that they sit on, which is not disclosed as well, is not actually insured. So I, I do understand that they're in the early days. Um, so it's, I'd be curious to see how that pans out. But also from a more critical perspective as well. Um, at 11FS, we talk a lot about, uh, you know, the banking battlefield and how things go from, uh, you know, analog to digitized to digital. Um, so when it comes to, you know, the serving underserved communities and, and marginalized communities, uh, it's it's all easy to just like throw the word you know black or Latinx owned onto a business, um, but how is that work being done meaningfully? So not just you know existing and throwing the word black onto it, and instead creating you know using more creative and uh, innovative ways to address historically you know underserved communities. So like one example I could just point to is is you know addressing the credit scoring gap, um, which is inherently racist and inherently. Uh, you know, it keeps a, certain communities uh, marginalized. Um, another thing is to, is to you know, how how is this bank going to be addressing informal methods of money management in communities? So the idea of sharing money in communities is, has been around for so long, and in ethnic communities, it's all done in a very informal, under-the-table way. Uh, you know, if you look at countries like in Haiti, they have susus in Ghana, they call it box-hand. In Kenya, they're called uh, jamas. Um, so, you know, is this bank going to start allowing people together to, to create like um, mutual aid group share, like sharing uh, initiatives? So that's I'm more curious about that side of things. Like you can't just like slap the word black onto something. Uh, how are you actually going to address uh, these communities?
0: Yeah. So as the uh, middle aged white male on this group, let me mansplain. now I'm even going to remotely go there because Kate will slap me so hard. Um, I I will say this. I I lived in Atlanta and worked in Atlanta for 10 years. Um, uh, One of the the advisors for this is Ambassador and former Atlanta Mayor Andrew Young. He is a legend. Um, Atlanta really is a a hotspot when it comes to the civil rights movement. Um, I mean, Andrew Young was a former pastor who was with Martin Luther King. Um, If you have to have an advisor on your board, that's a good place to start. So for me, that is one thing that stands out. Um, and, and his son Bo is also on the board, which um, I greatly appreciate. I have a I have a feeling he'll be able to bring um, several banks to the table that will be FDI insured, and hopefully black banks. Let me just go ahead and flat out say that. Um, I'm, I, I don't mean that as a knock to you know any of the other banks, but it'd be nice to see a majority owned black bank be the source of deposits for this. You know, um, Alice. One thing that stands out to me, and I'd love to get your feedback on this. One of the things I really talk about is this idea of community. And so when they talk about this digital platform, when you go to their website, they say they've got several ways they're going to give back, which is I'm going to provide five meals to a food insecure family when an account is open to give $10,000 every month to a black or Latino business and round up spare change to support historically black colleges, the NAACP and others. Coming out of the gate, I can't remember a challenger bank um, or a fintech coming right out of the gate doing that and usually you know you gotta wait till you're at scale like you know Bank of America or Chase before you hear those type of commitments you think that's a yeah a boon for them if you will
2: yeah I mean it's certainly impressive and I think now probably you know reflecting the times as well that we're expecting more We're, you know particularly through the Black Lives Matter movement there's been a call on traditional financial institutions to start doing this stuff and it's become really important but it's fantastic to see that, you know, out of the gate, that, you know, that this is something that they're prioritizing. But interestingly, when you said community, I interpreted that actually to mean more kind of how are they fostering a sense of community and also thinking about what you were saying, Guerra, which I thought was so interesting about you know, particularly within ethnic groups, managing money differently. I think that's fascinating. Um, And it would be great to see if that's something that they're kind of considering doing. But also I'm really interested as well to see, you know, and Guerra, I'd be keen to get your thoughts on this. Like, do you think there's a place for this in the UK? Because actually I I was having a look at, kind of the Runnymede Trust and they have a lot of research on financial disadvantage amongst you know BME groups and and certainly this is a problem in the UK as well and particularly when you're looking at kind of access to credit and finance I think 88 percent of white households have a current account versus 77 percent within black communities like do you think I don't know do you think this is something that we would see in the UK or do you think banks need to start thinking about you know traditional banks need to start thinking about kind of serving these communities better?
3: Um, yeah, I think I think the UK is in a different different battlefield. I would even I would say just purely based on the regulator. Uh, so you know the FCA is like incredibly coordinated and well organized, and uh, you know and very uh, pa- like passionate about um, treating customers fairly. Um, so I think the UK is positioned to have this kind of work be seen in the larger banks rather than like you know an, an incumbent. Um, I am a little, again, fuzzy on the details, I don't quite know, but I, I do know that there are various initiatives within banks uh, to address populations of, of refugees in the UK. The UK does um, welcome a large number of refugees, a large number of people who are um, like basically starting fresh new lives in the UK. So yeah, it'd be cool to see um, a, an, a, an incumbent like Monzo or Starling um, address this in a really meaningful way and, and be close to customers. but. Uh, banks are positioned in a place where they can do this. Um, I just don't know how high on their priority list it is or how lucrative (laughs) these kinds of customers could be for them.
0: You know, Kate, one thing I love about this, because Kate and I, um, we've we've actually, I do work every now and then for 11FS. Only um, occasionally. Very occasionally. And I try to limit it to as little as possible. But um, we've worked on projects to where, you know, you really got to come up with a name that resounds, right? I mean, Monzo did a good job. I know Jason Bates has talked about how do you name a fintech, right? Make it sound kind of like a verb, keep it somewhat fuzzy. I love the name Greenwood, the historical mm. aspect of this, um, and, and the chance to educate people about that is the bit. Um, Kate, Kate and I like history, everybody. We're, we're, Kate and I are geeks. We both love history. We love owls. But I love the historical context of the name of this product.
1: Yeah, and it's um, I'm still learning about it myself. But you look back at the history of you know Greenwood in Tulsa, Oklahoma, kind of that really hugely successful, vibrant Black community. You know the way that it was horrendously um, destroyed in the 1920s. You know there's such a hugely powerful story there about you know what can happen when. Um, you know, these communities are given the the space and the structure to create their own own wealth and sustain their own wealth, um, and I suppose that's kind of what they want to tap into. So to me, that's I totally am uh, on board with a lot of Guerra's uh, fintech scepticism. I think there's still a lot for them to prove, but for me, it's just hugely exciting to have uh, a brand with this potential in this space that can sustain the conversation around the the huge financial inequality that exists in the US but also in the UK um, I mean some of the stats when you when you look it up are just mind-blowing um, and it kind of connects to you know they've picked in their their launch a handful of key metrics that they they kind of want to talk about around you know the, the amount of time that a dollar circulates in the white community in the black community you know, mortgage approval rates but there's just so many that you could you know just start after start after stat where we just really need to change this and address this I think the one that Really blew my mind was you know when you look at, I think this is sort of from 2016, it takes you know 11.5 black households to get to the same net worth as an average white household in the US. Like that is just insane. Um, and so much of that wealth is kind of concentrated in historic privilege, um, you know, owned assets, assets that are passed down from from family to family. So this isn't something that we can just fix overnight. So I really think we need a strong brand in the market that's going to champion this as a conversation for a long time. Um, and I'm excited to see this emerge as, as a potential candidate for that role, but they've got a lot to prove.
0: Yes, they do. And uh, I'll, I'll just say though, the legacy of that name and also who they have on the board. I think the one thing they grasp, and, and I'll, I'll just say this to wrap up the story, the fact that you have such an order like Andrew Young behind this and such of, of and I'm going to say old school, right? We're talking, you know, someone who actually marched with Martin Luther King that's been through uh, this experience. And then you see the next generation with someone like Killer Mike, who um, here in the U.S. when, uh, you know, we were having so much social unrest due to the murder of, you know, Breonna Taylor and of George Floyd. And I said murder. So get over it, people. Um but uh, Killer Mike came out and spoke with the mayor and the police chief of Atlanta and gave, I think, easily one of the greatest off-the-cuff um, talks that I personally have ever heard. So I'm very excited to see what they can do with the storytelling aspect of this to build up the community. And I know from a 11FS standpoint, we'll do everything we can to support these, the, the team at Greenwood. All right, let's move on to our next story. Um, so going from a startup to uh, a behemoth, we're going to talk about Klarna now. Um, And this this story comes from BBC News, who report numerous people last week reported they've received a marketing email from Klarna despite never having used the payment services. This was followed by an apology message. In the U.S., we're like, yeah. And in the U.K., you're like, oh, my God, that's awful. Uh, Klarna said that their checkout technology is a product some retailers use to process payments on their website. This means that Klarna processes all credit and debit card transactions for those retailers. An ICO, that's an information commissioner's office. Spokesman told the BBC businesses should only contact individuals for electronic marketing purposes where consent has been provided or in limited circumstances where they have an existing relationship with a customer. Spokesman for Klarna said whenever anyone uses Klarna's checkout technology, they agree to the terms and conditions and a privacy notice which allows Klarna to promote its products and services to them. So Alice, this is what we would say in the US is in your wheelhouse. Go. What do you, What's your thoughts on this one?
2: <laughs> so so I think it is important to know that there's you know Klarna have actually they have apologized and acknowledged that the email itself that that shouldn't have been sent so um it's it's a question of kind of how the email has ended up in the hands of their marketing team but but anyway to step back a bit you know Klarna have been at the center of you know lots of debate recently um, around the ethics of their products, questions around regulation. I've been running a campaign um, calling for them to be regulated. Um, but you know, in any instance, as you rightly say, in the UK we take data protection and in the EU take data protection very seriously. And so, in any instance, a customer receiving an email for a product they've never used would definitely um, you know cause questions to be asked. But but I think with Klarna who you know, one of the big criticisms has been that they kind of overtly target consumers, particularly young women. Um, Their marketing techniques have certainly kind of raised eyebrows. Um, So, you know, then you look at the nature of the product being a credit product and a kind of unsolicited email sent to, I don't know, but, you know, presumably several, several thousand um, definitely adds fuel to an already um, blazing fire in, in my view
0: um how many of y'all received the email from clarina any of you oh oh i, one. I did two all right so 50 percent. there we go i, I feel,
3: I feel leave, left out I now <laughs> it, yeah it, it was uh it was quite the surprise i did see it on my phone and and kind of tilt my head and think oh maybe i guess i did sign up for this and then um looking at it right now it was maybe like a 15 minute or an hour difference between like um them sending a sorry period unexpected newsletter um but yeah, you like as as Alice mentioned, like it's curious. Like, how did my email end up on that list? How are you? You know, are you in, complying with a lot of PII, uh, you know, requirements? How are you making sure my data is safe?
0: Yeah, there's uh, there's one thing I I um, this is a, a chance for me to shamelessly plug my thing. So I do a a daily news brief every day on LinkedIn, um, and I talk about Klarna all the time because of buy now pay later, um, and I talk about how hot it is right now in the U S and it seems like in the UK too, when it comes to this concept. Um, I mean, Kate, uh, are you buying into this, this whole, and that's definitely a Klarna thing, right?
1: Buy now, pay later.
0: Yeah. Are you buying into the hype?
1: Mm, I'm deeply skeptical. Um, I think I suppose to, to Alice's point, you know, they're going after they're targeting customer groups who maybe haven't had access to traditional credit products. um, And they are targeting them with this new, Way of, of of purchasing, and I'm not sure we've had the supporting kind of conversation and education that that needs to accompany this dramatic shift in uh, purchasing power. You know, I've at the moment I'm working um, on a project around people mm-hmm. in problem debt, um so this is actually you know obviously very close to my heart in that sense. You know, you're seeing huge problems of people using this type of functionality poorly, and I know that that's obviously you know, I know people that use Klarna and rave about it and love it. Um, and they do some amazing stuff in terms of their, their customer journeys and, and making things easy and intuitive. But I think we still need to have a very serious uh, conversation about what the impact is going to be longer term for, for people's financial futures. So I'm definitely going to follow Alice's campaign of interest.
0: Yeah. So Alice, I actually have sent your uh, Instagram page to my three daughters. Um, to take a look at here oh, in the us and you. hey, you're three welcome new,
2: three new followers
0: three, there you go uh, so you'll, you'll see your numbers tick up no that was me um <laughs> if, if you believe that um i i'm curious though again from your standpoint because paypal has also gone into the uk if i'm not if i'm aware if i got this right on this uh paypal mm-hmm. three which is again a buy now pay later scheme so you know they obviously see some you know market there i mean what's your thoughts
2: Yeah, I mean it's a no-brainer, particularly at the moment, because it's a great thing for retailers. But but I think, you know, the other side of it, and just to be very clear, you know, I'm not saying that these products are all bad at all. As you know, Kate rightly says, definitely there's there's some use to them. But I think what's interesting and what kind of you know parallels to this story as well is is the lack of transparency and and poor communication to consumers. And that's partly, actually, I think is beyond Klarna's responsibility. I think ultimately that's why I'm calling for regulation, because remember, this is an industry, as you say, there are other players in the market, and ultimately we need all of them to be brought to the same, you know, held to the same standards so that consumers are fully aware of the risks of using them that information is given to them at the point of purchase, which it currently isn't, you know, you can just click away with very, very little kind of information provided to you about risks, when to pay back, that sort of thing. Um, And also in advertising, that's another really big part of this is that there's been no risk wording in advertising because it's simply, you know, they're they're unregulated credit products, um, the majority of them. um, And, And so there's, there's no requirement to really explain these products to consumers. And that's really dangerous, particularly when you're looking at a very young demographic who are often being heavily, heavily pushed these products.
0: And I wonder how you balance that, Kate, Uh, because that's one of the things we work on a lot at 11FS, right? Is the user experience. Like I'm thinking of these glasses I'm wearing, which y'all, you know, these are remarkable glasses. They're Warby Parker. And when I purchased them, a firm came up and I could do three serious, simple interest free installment payments, Right. But it was incredibly smooth there wasn't much trust me i wasn't reading t's and c's i was moving along so the user experience was great which we want to have but how do you balance that on the privacy side kate
1: yeah and um, firstly sam you're obviously spending way too much on your glasses so i think we need to hundred dollars come on cheap. <laughs> um but no i i kind of agree and i think yeah, Alice is right you know this lack of transparency is is an issue now but i think it's going to become an even bigger issue with the direction of travel around embedded finance. So we're only going to see more of this happening where the kind of customer facing uh, user experience will appear like it's one brand and actually underneath it are going to be a whole host of different providers coming together to power that experience. Um, so I, I think we really need to have the conversation about what that transparency means and how we get the balance right between providing information back to customers, but also kind of confusing them and providing information that nobody reads. Um, because we're only going to end up with more complicated systems where data is being passed between more and more underlying providers. Um, and I think that's really what's most interesting to me about this story is kind of actually all these people using Klarna's product and just didn't know it. Um, and that for me is just a first taste of increased you know, where we're going to end up in more and more and more spaces in our financial lives. So I think it's important for us to talk about.
0: Yeah, so, I'm going to give you the last word on this one, but I want to share something I saw on Twitter this morning from uh, Becky Yost. And hopefully I said your name right, Becky. She said, here's my hot take. Data is not the new oil. Data is the new glitter. It lures humans in with the shininess. It's very easy to accumulate. Found in places you'd least likely expect to find it. Almost impossible to get rid of. Everyone insists on using it without thinking through the consequences. I keep thinking of a glitter bomb. Here. Uh I I think this is just I do I love that analogy. And, and it keeps going on, by the way, and everybody added to it. But I mean that this this is tough. There's really not a simple answer for this. You know, this stuff goes deep. Um and but but it is something as especially as an analyst um that you have to take into account when you're designing products.
3: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I don't I don't have much to share on this piece just because I, you know, this this did the story happened to me directly. And I, and I've thought about it on a, on a personal uh, perspective as well. That's but the 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 buy- yeah. The, the buy now pay later space. Um, yeah. Like I was fully with you. I've just followed you on Instagram um, calling for regulation. Um, you know, the, 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 the FCA, uh, like, again, I'm back to England, unfortunately not really talking about the States, but the FCA can uh, start to regulate this. You know, they have, they have the power to actually start doing this. Um, it's just a matter of when, when they will do it.
0: Yeah, and we're getting regulations when it comes to data. But for U.S. Um, listeners, you know, you think about uh, a, a state like California, which is incredibly powerful, massive GDP, huge population. And trust me, data privacy is is in the forefront of their minds, which I find hilarious because you got Facebook and other companies sitting there in Menlo Park. Um, I won't give my opinion on Facebook, but I am holding up a finger. Um, but, but that's it. <laughs> Alice, I'll let you then get the last word on this one.
2: I just wanted to say that it's, it's probably worth flagging that, you know, the FCA are currently investigating this. Um, if you're not aware, um, they've recently uh, announced an investigation into unsecured credits. So, so that, that regulation may well be on the horizon for them. And, and the ASA, Advertising Standards Authority, are also investigating also into how these products can be responsibly marketed.
0: So I think um, a, a good takeaway for this is, as usual, from a U.S. standpoint, and regulatory standpoint, we're probably going to look at our, our British cousins to get a little bit of guidance on this. And that's not the first time that, that we've taken this approach. OK, and with that, we're going to take a quick pause, everybody, and hear from our sponsors. This episode of FinTech Insider is brought to you by MyTech. Combining the world's best forensic experts with the industry's most advanced technology, only MyTech delivers banking-grade identity verification with the highest possible assurance levels – massively reducing risk, fraud, and cost. Discover more at MyTechSystems.com. This episode is also brought to you by Jack Henry Digital, the pioneers of personal digital banking. They're reviving the vision of financial institutions being on a first-name basis with customers by offering a platform for personal, human-centered services that puts the customer first. Your customers experience immediate accessibility while your employers get cloud-based, core-connected tools to offer service at the moment of need. To learn more, explore the team's latest insights at jackhenrydigital.com. We've just launched two brand new shows on our LinkedIn page, and if you love our podcast, you should go and check them out. Every Tuesday, we deep dive into the biggest banking and fintech news stories with our show Newsroom. We've already had great episodes on the FinCEN files leak and the CrowdCube and Cedars merger that you can watch back in our LinkedIn or YouTube Now channel. And every Thursday, we speak to some of the biggest experts in technology and financial services about the work that they do and their careers to date. You'll have the chance to ask your questions and get them answered live on the show by some of the best minds in the industry. So what are you waiting for? Search 11FS on LinkedIn and follow us to start catching the streams. Thanks. And now on with the show. All right. Our next story. This one comes from Finextra and is how some former Barclays executives are launching another digital bank. A team of financial services experts led by two former Barclays executives have unveiled plans to launch Pennyworth, a new digital bank to serve the needs of young professionals and middle managers. Founders Jeremy Tackle and Ben Harvey, former managing director and head of product at Barclays U.S. Digital Consumer Bank, began the pre-application process to become an authorized U.K. bank in March 2020. Pennywise have now opened a wait list with the aim of recruiting 1,000 Pennyworth Pioneers, and I did air quotes everybody, to gain advanced access to its mobile banking app as part of the beta testing in early 2021. Pennyworth will not offer its own current accounts, but will instead use open banking to provide financial planning tools across all customer accounts, as well as offering high-yield savings and deposits, loans, and overdrafts. So I guess my question um, is: This a gap in the marketplace? I first time I heard the story, I immediately thought of Sofi, chasing all those Stanford grads. This is almost like the opposite of the Greenwood story that we started with. So I mean, is there a market for this in the UK?
1: I'm interested to see what specific problems they're actually planning to solve. So their strapline is banking for busy people. Um, you know, I can get on board with that. I like to put my life in a spreadsheet. I've Look, before COVID, I would have classified myself as busy, Um, but at the moment, it's not really clear kind of what they're planning to do that's different. They've got some stuff on their website about you know higher interest rate savings accounts. We know from Marcus that you know what if you can come into a a space with a market leading interest rate and a low friction onboarding journey that you can drive acquisition. But you know, actually, I'm I'm still waiting to see what they're going to do above that. You know, they talk about. Providing customer service that doesn't exist at the moment, but it's kind of hard to see based on what they've shared so far what that's actually going to look like. Um, and I'm intrigued to know what middle managers are. I don't. Does this exist in the UK? I don't know. Like maybe the, this feels like quite an American term. So I'm interest, I'm interested to see. Obviously, you know they're, they're coming from Barclays in the US. They're launching in the UK. You know that's interesting in itself. Do they? Do they have an understanding of this market? You know, Sam, you talked about SoFi and, and kind of those um, you know, the problems that young professionals in the US experience. There are differences. You know, people in the UK when they're starting their careers, getting into their careers, don't have that same level of student debt. Um, there's not that same relationship with with credit cards. Um, it's a different audience, so I'm intrigued to see what they what they bring to market.
0: Yeah, uh, I'll tell you one thing that throws me personally is the name Pennyworth because every time I hear it, I think of the clown in it. His name was Pennywise. If y'all didn't know that, again, that's the geek in me. I immediately go to that, and I'm like, "Ooh, all right." Now, I'm sure in the UK, maybe that Pennyworth is a much more common phrase. But I, that's one thing that threw me. I'm, I'm wondering if maybe if that was the name of the internal report that happened at Barclays that these two guys decided to go out and start their bank. I'm not saying that happened, but you know, I put a, I put you know, five pounds on a bet that maybe that's where this idea came from. What do we think about two bankers from Barclays doing this though? Uh,
3: Yeah, sorry. So this, you're absolutely right. Oh, I don't know if you're absolutely right, but I agree. I think this came out of a, you know, very long winded report that was written by some very smart people uh, who, um, you know, have very ambitious goals. Um, So, the fact that they're not building on their own app really and just using open banking is, you know, great. Already check the box of not having to do that legwork. You know, it just look. It sounds to me like they're building the Monzo for uh, rich people. Uh, so I don't know if if that's the right the right term to be using, but um, you know, like Monzo, you know, Tom Blom has said in the past that Monzo's is the plan is to have that be a, a financial control center. Um, so this, this kind of on paper looks like, yeah, it looks like a smart idea, um, but I, just, I wonder how um, they would reach that, that audience and how, how they would uh, you know, begin testing and pulling people away from the banks that they've been with for years and years and whether or not you know, the pool would be enough, the interest rates and the, the services that they would, they would tack on.
0: Oh well, That's the idea, right, Alice, uh, especially when you these challenger banks, is get you right when you're coming out of university or in university and you become a lifelong customer. And if you're targeting these middle managers, I guess you could say up-and-comers from a wealth standpoint, um, I, I I understand that aspect of this.
2: Yeah. I mean, I had a look at their website and um, I have to say the proposition does feel a bit confusing. They kind of had a very 90s picture of, of a guy in a call center with a call center mic on, but then the functionality, it feels like they're kind of going down the Monzo Monzo line. So I'm not, yeah, hugely clear on who they're targeting. But if they are going after kind of high net worth individuals, then I don't think Pennywise really schemes that. So, um, yeah, a bit, bit of a confusing one.
0: Yeah. The, and so I evidently thank you to our producers. I should always read further in the show notes. So Olivia, Laura and the team did their and Hannah did their research. So Pennywise is also the name for an American crime drama series, which takes inspiration from the D.C. comics, exploring the backstory of Alfred, who becomes Bruce Wayne's butler. I don't know having a butler as the main character of the story again fits this, you know, um, and, and I think I've got them to change the name to Pennywise because now Alice likes that <laughs> for the it clown. Um, it is Pennyworth, everybody. But if that's the butler from the Batman series, again, I don't think that's the the market you're trying to attract. So my assumption is this. They're going to amp for London quite heavily is where I assume this is where they're going to try to attract talent from.
1: Yeah, I think that makes makes sense. I mean, I don't know, maybe they think that middle managers are harking back to a time when you could have paid for a butler and you could have had a butler to run all your finances for you. I don't know if that was part of the typical butler job description back in the day, I don't know. Um, But yeah, I I think it's odd It's odd branding. Um, They're just trying to make a bit of noise now to to sign customers up their waiting list. They're obviously not going to bring anything to market until the early next year. So they've still got plenty of time to to test and and iterate on their product and their proposition. So I'm I'm not going to kind of rule it out completely, Um, but I am skeptical.
0: Yeah. So, so in lovely Kingston, Jamaica, God, I could go for some Malibu rum right now. And it's only, it's only 1230 in the afternoon, but you know, Hey, it's five o'clock, right? Where y'all are at. So that would be okay. What's the over under on this? What do you think? Think, think they'll succeed with this thing.
3: Um, I think that, Right off the bat, no, <laughs> but I'm um, being honest. But uh, I mean, if they do this in a smart way and, you know, like introduce, like, because for things that are designed for high net worth individuals or, um, you know, it, it screams exclusivity. Uh, so, you know, get a metal card or maybe even a gold card and give people the customer experience that they get from like an Amex, for example. Um, so, you know, Amex has been able in the States to to do really well with, with their, um, I believe it's a Sapphire card or the, the sorry, the Cobalt card as well uh, which, you know, in, introduces a level of exclusivity. Um, but right, right off the bat, looking at the website, looking at the offering, uh, it's going to, it's going to be tough to attract that. But, you know, then again, I'm not really, uh, their target audience. I'm not a bro in banking right now.
0: Well, we'll see how it goes. It'll be a story that will follow, um, who knows? All right, let's move on to our next story. Um, I love how we're kind of going from startup to huge behemoth to startup, and now let's go back to a massive success square. So Square, we just had a story come out in Finextra that Square invested fifty million dollars in Bitcoin. So Square's invested fifteen million dollars. Like I said, they argue that the cryptocurrency is an instrument of economic empowerment. The payments firm says it is bought. 4,709 Bitcoins, which are currently trading at nearly $11,000 per Bitcoin. That's up from 7000 in January this year. Square's decision to link its investment to economic empowerment chimes with founder Jack Dorsey's recent spat with Brian Armstrong, the boss of crypto exchange Coinbase. After Armstrong said that Coinbase would keep out of politics and societal issues, Jack Dorsey responded that crypto is direct activism against an unverified and exclusionary financial system which negatively affects so much of our society. And we actually spoke to our resident Bitcoin and blockchain expert, Simon Taylor, to get his take on this story.
1: In purchasing 4,709 Bitcoin, Square's investment represents 1% of its total assets. Square framed this deal as a bit of an endorsement of Bitcoin. Uh, saying Square believes that cryptocurrency is an instrument of economic empowerment and provides a way for the world to participate in the global monetary system, which aligns with the company's purpose. For me, hedge funds have been doing things like this for quite some time. Having 1% to 2% of your capital allocated to Bitcoin is quite normal. And Bitcoin's available via Robinhood, and it's available via Square and Fidelity and many other areas. It's slowly become a sensible choice. Interesting, though, that Square is the first major culprit to put this on the balance
0: sheet. Maybe they're starting a trend. Who knows? So one of my favorite things that happened on the day this story broke, everybody, is uh, Jack Dorsey on Twitter, so founder of Twitter, posted, yes, Square invested $50 million into Bitcoin today to Ethereum users. Have fun staying poor. So I think within the crypto community, that's really funny. <laughs> For me, that's kind of funny. You know, I had to go look up what Ethereum's price was. When that came out. Um, I mean, is this is this a sign that Bitcoin's going mainstream? How many of y'all own Bitcoin? Let's let me ask that. By show of hands. Not a single hand. I
3: owned Bitcoin in two thousand and fourteen. <laughs> yes. Yeah, well, oh, okay.
0: oh, there you go. So Alice owns Bitcoin. All right, Alice. So is it is it mainstream now?
2: I mean, I'll be completely honest. I have, I have no idea, and I haven't checked the price in a very long time. I just just searched Bitcoin price USD, and it has gone up since I last checked, about probably two months ago. So that's good to see. But um, but in all honesty, um, I'm not that I'm an expert by any means on cryptocurrency. But but I'm always very skeptical about the idea of mainstream usage of, of cryptocurrency.
0: So true story, in 2000, and I think it was 2011, it might have been 2012, I was waiting for a conference call to start. And with the other two folks on the call, consultants, I said, have you read about this Bitcoin thing? Why don't we all pitch in 100 bucks? We'll buy it and just see where it goes. Um, I, I, as of last week, that would have been worth $550,000, everybody, which tells you I didn't buy Bitcoin at the time. So again, I'm not a person. can comment on this story. I think Simon did a pretty good um, take on this. I do think it's interesting that longtime hedge fund manager Paul Tudor Jones told CNBC on Monday that Wall Street could be witnessing the historic birthing of a store of value via Bitcoin. He said just over 1% of my assets are in Bitcoin. Maybe it's almost two. Who knows? That seems like the right number right now. Every day that goes by, Bitcoin survives. The trust in it will go up. I think if you all remember, Bitcoin, I think hit almost 20 grand Um, A few years ago, but it's really hovered around 11, to be blunt, ever since. I think it got as low as 7,000 recently or even 5,000 and back up to 11. Um, I think, um, well, Alice, I mean, you know, you you, you talk about this and you're right about this. You want to have diversification in your portfolio, right? So evidently you do because you own a little crypto. So good for you. Maybe I need to go cash in a stock and buy a fractional share of Bitcoin because that's all I can afford right now.
2: Yeah, I think there's also, you know, there's definitely the hope with um, some investors that will, you know, you see those kind of wild articles claiming that, you know, we'll see $100,000 Bitcoin and so on. Um, so, yeah, interesting. I really know nothing else about Bitcoin, so I bet it's stopped. There.
0: Uh, th- there was a wonderful <laughs> bet uh, that I won't go into too much detail, but there's an old show where Simon Taylor talks about this, where, uh, uh, a certain individual made a bet on what the price of Bitcoin would be. And if he was wrong, he would, he would uh, devour part of his own anatomy. Guerra is nodding. She knows that story. Um, we'll find a link and I'll post it. you are you going to say something on this?
3: Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, this is, this is a really interesting story. Like Bitcoin is mainstream now. Um, and, you know, like I said, I, I, I am one of the few people who had a, a Bitcoin uh, many, many, many years ago, Gifted to me uh, that I sold way too early. Um, but I, th- I think we've gone, we've gone past the, the spike and, and, you know, the boom and bust and now it's kind of, it's stabilized. There's been some kind of crypto market correction, uh, that's happened. Uh, but I wonder if, if, you know, square endorsing this in, in this way is, is, either, you know, they're hustling backwards or it could be some kind of canary in the coal mine that, that we are just all blind. <laughs> I'm, I'm blind to. Uh, personally, I feel, I feel the former, I feel like they are hustling backwards. Like you don't, you do not need to be yelling about crypto in 2020
0: yeah I would agree I I would just put it this way for listeners follow Simon Taylor this is his thing he's good at it (laughs) he can explain it would you agree Kate
1: yeah I think it's um I think it's interesting from a couple of different perspectives so obviously you know as Simon said it's a really a small proportion of of Square's assets so in terms of like it as as an investment from Square like it's not actually a massive deal but when you look at the investment that Square has made in Bitcoin and other parts of its business. So obviously, you know, its Cash App has a really strong connection with, with Bitcoin. So I think the last time I looked at it, you know, the Bitcoin was accounting for about half of Cash App's revenue, you know, according to some estimates. And Cash App's valuation is almost two-thirds of Square's total value you know, valuation. So they're very closely connected. Um, and I think this is kind of like a win-win situation where they get to diversify a bit. They get to um, you know, stay true to Jack Dorsey's long held ethical pledge to, to cryptocurrency and they get to bolster something that actually is quite a good thing for their business overall. So multiple wins.
0: So we'll follow it. We'll figure it out. Um, let's come back a year from now and see what Bitcoin is actually uh, trading at. We'll see if it's still around 11,000 and has got that nice stability. All right. Our next story. This one comes from Finextra, and it's around the FCA, the Financial Conduct Authority. They've warned banks that they must now provide the same standard of surveillance of staff working from home as they would in an office environment. The FCA's Director of Market Oversight, Julia Hoggart, said that while scenarios emerged early in the pandemic where the usual levels of recording and surveillance were not possible, firms should now have overcome these challenges. Our expectation is that going forward, office and working from home arrangements should be equivalent. This is not a market for information that we that we wish to see be arbitraged. We expect firms to have their policies, refreshing their training, and put in place rigorous oversight reflecting the new environment, particularly regarding the risk of use of privately owned devices. The FCA says that this is essential to protect against market abuse, especially for traders still working remotely. Well, I think it's safe to say that Working from home is going to be the new norm, Lord. Well, into 2021, um, we've heard this from, for example, Jamie Dimon, the CEO of JPMC here in the U.S. I know I've talked to folks at Citi and others. Uh, Microsoft has said that they're going to allow their employees to work from home at their choice going forward, regardless of a pandemic or not. So this this concept then of the the security requirements for folks working at a home, how difficult do you think this is going to be for companies to enforce?
3: Um, I'll start. I, I'll start by also just mentioning um, a story that came out earlier this year um, about Barclays uh, spying on their employees and using, uh, you know, data that, that was, you know, really a black box. The tool was a black box. We don't really know uh, what it did, but basically it was heat tracking them and motion sensing and making sure that people were at their desks. Uh, it, it's not hard to actually implement this kind of this kind of like software or even like to track people like that. It's just whether or not it's ethical or, or how you can do it ethically.
0: Yeah. And I think it's one that I, I, I completely understand this. i mean, a story that I'm going to talk about on that breakfast show. Hey everybody, LinkedIn, 830 every month. I'm going to talk about tomorrow's around Wells Fargo, um, having, um, uh, it looks like somewhere around a hundred employees that through the PPP loans that occurred in the U S. Um, we had some, uh, nefarious things going on. So I wonder how much of that happened, from home, and yes, of course, this would be Wells Fargo, that you know this hits with. Um, I just, I, I wonder how hard it's going to be for the FCA to actually enforce this and, and set these policies up. You know, I, I guess this this also opens up a whole new round of audits. Um, I can see consultancy firms like Deloitte going. Thank God. <laughs> personally because yeah. Uh, it, yeah it just
1: it sounds like the fca doesn't have the answer itself it's kind of just trying to put the, the first shots out there to try and make banks come up with the ideas themselves and come back to them with their approaches so we're still in that really interesting in-between phase right of migrating from the, the panic of early lockdown to these longer term trends of working remotely and i think now we're in this space where more and more Businesses are trying to work out what sustainable, long-term working practices look like. Um, so, yeah, I think it's right that the FCA is is having this conversation. You know, we're just waiting for these types of uh, scandals to emerge. Right? You know, stuff is going to have happened during lockdown, and we want our financial services to be regulated. We want uh, practices to be safe. Um, so, it, as this is going to continue as as a conversation, but. I do think we have to have some way of of allowing staff to work safely, remotely, but also making sure that, yeah, money is safe and and financial transactions are safe.
0: And Alice, uh, you're you're in London. Correct me if I'm wrong. You guys just went to like a level tier two, I think it's called for a lockdown. Is that right? Due to COVID? We have. Can you explain what that means for our U.S. audience? Because
2: I mean, I I can't promise I will be particularly good at explaining it because I think everyone's a little bit confused over here, but I believe it now means that, we can't see people indoors, is that right? Yeah, we can only we can only meet with people outside of our households or bubbles outdoors. So, I saw someone today tweet that you should invest in puffer jackets, which I think is quite good good uh, investment advice.
0: Canadian goose, everybody, buy the stock; they're going to make a fortune. Exactly. You know where I think this gets difficult um, is. Uh, a lot of people, we say it working from home. It's not working from home. It's working remote. I mean, I don't know how many folks at 11FS I've talked to that rented out a villa, for example, in Italy and worked for a month living in Italy, right? Um, on Airbnb, I saw a great recommendation where uh, someone said, you know, especially during this, these lockdowns, one thing you should put on your Airbnb write-up is what is your download and upload speed for Wi-Fi? Because we're just seeing properties. I live in Florida. Property getting sucked up like crazy as a place for folks from, say, New York or you know California to work and, and come down here for 30 days plus. So when you talk about this working from home, I think that's a term we should actually dump. It's, it's working remote. So it does get back to how do you lock down devices? How do you make it secure? And we live in a highly regulated industry and in financial services where personally I, I do think you need those securities. The, the, the chance to abuse the system is just too large and it only takes a small number of folks to do it and you know expose so much risk to an organization but you know pandora's box is open this is the new this is the new norm kate how many damn conference calls have we done now kate Too <laughs> I'm many. Sick of conference calls Too and many. zoom meetings yeah well, what were you gonna say alice i'm sorry
2: no just on the on the kind of fca point i mean you look at what they're asking it's it's simply for the surveillance to be at the same standard that it would be in in the office so yeah i i do totally get you know the the ethical stuff around kind of being spied on but but i think in financial markets it's kind of it's part of the job anyway and um yeah they need to get cracking on thinking of thinking about how they do that effectively
0: yeah it's not easy aguero one thing i was thinking about i was remembering at jpmc um, uh, over the summer, they said, look, it's time to get our folks back in the office. So they wanted their traders to come back into New York. And I remember president Trump, you know, saying, Hey, what a good job guys. Way to go. Way to go. Chase. That lasted about two days because someone tested positive for COVID. They had to let everybody know at the trading desk and send them home. But these are the type of things you don't think of. That was a 46 story building. So the other people that work in their building on different floors didn't, weren't notified of that and i remember one of the employees was quoted in the new york times as saying i learned about this on bloomberg it would have been nice to know that those elevators i was riding up and down on that we had folks that had tested positive for covid so um, we're in the early days folks that's all i'll say it's 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 not even the the first half we're in the opening minutes of what life is going to be like and you know for the lord upcoming years so we'll see where this goes Okay, we're going to move on now, and we're getting to the end of the show, so just to round up some of the other stories from the week that we didn't have time to cover, and there's so much happening, it's nuts out there. We can't cover it all, but these stories do deserve a shout-out, so Kate and I are going to do rapid fire. Kate, you ready for this? Ready. All right. You're up first.
1: Yeah, first up story for an extra, Guarantee BBVA ships blank card with no code imprints. So Guarantee BBVA has begun issuing a rewards-based credit card that stores credit card numbers, expiration dates, and CVV codes on a separate mobile app rather than on the physical card itself. The physical version of Bonus Digi does not include any visible number or code imprinted on the card's surface. Customers can already apply for the new bonus DigiCard digitally and have it approved in minutes without the need for a physical signature. And once approved, customers will be able to start shopping immediately thanks to the built-in QR and mobile payment features without having to wait to receive the physical card. So my first impression when I checked this story out was firstly that the physical card is really, really ugly. Um, I appreciate the Turkish consumers and I might disagree on that. I've been led to believe that they quite like their bold colors, Um, but maybe that's Um, part of the the appeal to persuade customers to use the mobile payment features instead. But really, anything that helps keep customers' finances secure is obviously welcome. And we're seeing increasing innovation in this space, moving away from the traditional card designs. But really, this feels like much more a story around giving customers the ability to start spending as soon as they've opened an account um, so that customers can increasingly embrace non-cash payments. And we've seen that rapidly accelerate during COVID. So this makes a huge amount of sense to me.
0: And just to add into that, for all of you QR code haters out there, suck it. Still out there, still kicking. All right, our next story um, comes from Fintech Direct, where MasterCard will now make an undisclosed financial investment in California payments firm Marquetta as the two companies look to strengthen their partnership. The expansion plan will begin in the Asia-Pacific region. They are well known to each other. As since 2014, the duo has been working together across North America and Europe. For example, they helped launch the Square Card. This provides small businesses with access to their sales earnings through a business debit card. Marketa will also participate in MasterCard's programs like Digital First and FinTech Express. Um, we are big fans of Marketa um, here at 11FS. Uh, there, When they opened up their European office, we used to be able to walk uh, to it and from our old office at Aldgate East. We know them very well. We've actually implemented products on top of Marketa um so we love the team we love jason gardner um i think he was just named entrepreneur of the year for northern california so jason good shout out to you by the way everybody they're going to ipo very soon so damn marquetta has been killing it and i think the other thing that's interesting here is it's just not mastercard marquetta's got a great relationship with visa so we don't give financial advice on this show um but that said marquetta well done
1: cool um Story over at CNBC. European fintech giant Revolu is close to applying for a bank charter in California, sources say. So, Revolu is close to applying for a banking license in the US. The London-based fintech plans on applying for a charter with the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco and California's Division of Financial Institutions within weeks. The Revolut bank charter will be with California, but it will apparently allow the lender to operate widely throughout the US via interstate agreements the move to apply for a state banking charter rather than one through a national regulator has drawn questions. So close to applying, I suppose that in itself isn't, isn't really big news. Um, obviously we'll have to wait and see when they actually make the application itself. Timelines on this are quite interesting, I suppose. You know, we've seen Revolu take longer to move towards applying for licenses in other markets. So I think this sort of shows a change in in their strategy and in their kind of turnaround times. Um, but really, you know, the fact that they're applying for a state license isn't surprising. We've seen so many fintechs trying to get into the US, going down that route from Square, going for the Industrial Loan Charter in Utah to you know, Kraken Financial, trying to get something, I think it's in Wyoming. So really, until the OCC can reach some sort of final settlement on its special fintech charter, we're going to carry on seeing stories like this, and we're going to carry on learning more about the wonderful nuances of state charters across the U.S. I will add California to my list of states to go read about.
0: Yeah, and again, California is a country. Everybody, I hate to <laughs> that. <laughs> and they—they're their own country. That place is massive. So I mean, if you're gonna pick one, good on them for starting there. All right, and finally, our last story comes again from Finextra, where they noted a story that coronavirus can survive up to 28 days on paper banknotes. And I immediately, my mind goes to the movie 28 Days Later by Denny Boyle. No, no coincidence whatsoever, I'm sure, when the vaccine comes out. So researchers at the CSIRO, that's Australia's National Science Agency, have found that the coronavirus can survive up to 28 days, God bless it, on common surfaces, including bank notes and mobile phone screens. The research also showed that the virus survives longer on paper banknotes rather than plastic ones. Other analysts indicate that it is much more difficult for virus to be transferred from porous surfaces, such as cotton banknotes, than from smooth surfaces like plastic. However, to avoid panic, the CSIRO study was carried out in the dark to remove the effect of UV light. As research has demonstrated, direct sunlight can rapidly inactivate the virus. Well, hey, that's what we needed uh, to know. And as you're going to tier two in uh, <laughs> the UK, um, I mean, how often I'm just curious, you know, for y'all, how often do you guys actually use physical cash? And Alice, I'll start with you.
2: Yeah, I have to say very rarely. And on the odd occasion that you like find yourself on a, I don't know, a, a weekend away in a tiny village in Cornwall and they only accept cash. I'm kind of confused and don't really know what to do. So um yeah, not at all. I have to say. How
1: about you, Kate? So I don't personally use cash a huge amount, but I do live in uh, a part of West London, quite near to uh, Portobello Road, Portobello Market. So I do actually constantly just see huge queues outside my local bank branches. People kind of going in, depositing cash, using branch services because you know the area as a whole still has high cash usage and cash circulation. So yeah, for for me individually, you know this doesn't freak me out but for communities that are more dependent on cash then obviously this is something to to kind of be maybe mildly concerned about but I do kind of have a heavy degree of uh skepticism i guess you given as you said the research was conducted under kind of like ideal conditions for the virus so um and as we learn more about it i think we increasingly understand that you know you have to have a very high kind of virus load in the first place you have to have the circumstances for it to survive so I mean, I'm not going to abandon cash completely just on the basis of this study, but it does contribute to ongoing uncertainty about cash usage. Aguera, cash uh,
0: I'm curious, uh, down in Kingston, so you know, I've spent time in Jamaica, but mainly at the resorts. So in the city itself, um, what, what's it like there? Is cash king? Is, that, is it more common?
3: yeah actually i i when i did get here i was really curious to see whether or not i would need to take cash out i'm lucky in that i'm staying with a relative who lives here and um who you know knows the city very well so i i took a chance by not taking cash out um and i haven't had to use any cash uh really except for one t- so that they have you know t- uh, tap to pay uh you know miles ahead of the of their the, the americans imagine
0: um, that shocking <laughs>
3: uh they got to have to pay for a lot of places um you know a lot of things that I, i've had to buy uh we i only really got uh, had to use cash to split a bill with with one with uh, my cousin the other day but yeah no not really in canada i have used i i haven't used cash, so i live in canada usually um and i haven't had to use cash except for at i i had my phone screen break recently and i went to a local uh fixer guy and he gave me a 30 percent discount if i paid cash so I had to go and uh, scour the neighborhood for an ATM. Yeah, that was the only time I lose cash.
0: Yeah, I just, you know, as, as if we need one more thing to worry about um, during a global pandemic. Uh, I think that's the thing that I kind of I find rather uh, interesting. You know, and, uh, the other thing I will note, though, is in the U.S., um, we've been printing cash like crazy. Um, by the way, the number of twenty dollar bills in circulation um, the percentage of it, I was trying to find it on my phone real quick, um, but that's out there right now is ridiculous. That's just been produced in the past like six months. I mean, since the pandemic hit. And here in the U.S., when you go shopping, like my daughter works at uh, um, a Ross, which is, I don't know, if that's the equivalent of a market spencers, a little nicer mark and spencers in the U.K. retail. Um, you know, they, they don't take coin. They, they have no coin cash. You know, they, don't, they, they can't give. Um, there's not enough coin in circulation in the U.S. for them to give exact change. They have signs up everywhere. So weird little side effect um, for this. But um, Alice, I'm going to lean in on you as uh, we're going to call you the financial um, uh, guru when it comes to this. Uh, any issues not being able to use cash or do you, do you just kind of promote, say, the digital side of this when it comes to payments?
2: So not at all. I think it's actually, you know, it's a privilege to not have to worry about it. I think it's important to note that access to cash is still really important for lots of people. Um, and interestingly, actually, I, I did I did a piece of work that um, was kind of looking at this, but actually access to banks and, you know, high street banks is still really important for people, for those that are, for example, looking to take out even less than a ten pound note, which is obviously often the minimum in a in a cash machine. So, so actually, you know, access to cash is super important for people, and um, and I think that's it's important that we don't kind of overlook that, particularly as well, elderly who might not necessarily be kind of plugged in with online banking and so on. Um, I think it's really important.
0: Well. You know, I'm gonna. My wife literally just walked in the house. Y'all might have heard the garage door go open since it's, it's, it's right underneath me. That was the dogs madly scrambling out for your background noise, folks. Um, and it is rather funny because I think between the two of us, I'm trying to think when's the last time I've seen any of us handle cash. And in the U.S., I can honestly say I, I physically I cannot remember, I can't over the past decade since I've moved back here. That's how strange it is, or just different it is, right? We automatically use. Um, we're either paying off an, an app when we're, you know, doing DoorDash or going to Starbucks or whatever, or, you know, we're paying with a card. It just, it just doesn't happen, which actually, frankly, is a positive thing. Cause you know, when you go to a fast food joint and you're watching the kid try to figure out the math, maths to give you the change, it's too painful. It's just not worth it. So I'm good. I'm good on the, on, on digital personally, folks, use your cards. It's all right. Uh, Just manage your money well. And folks, that's it. That wraps up the shows for today. We want to thank our guests. Um, Y'all were fabulous, every single one of you. Um, Alice, we've given you at least four or five new Instagram followers, but we want to up those numbers. So where's the best place for folks to learn about you and to learn about the work you're doing?
2: Sure. Yeah. So follow me on Instagram, which is um, GoFundYourself with underscores under every word and one extra at the end. Very annoying. Um, And also um, the website, GoFundYourself.co.
0: All right, and Guerra, um, besides 11FS, you co-founded a company, I'm going to slaughter the name of this, Afro-R... No, what, what's the name of that company you founded?
3: Afro-Urban, um, but the, the O is capitalized. Uh, it's, it's not a company. It's, it's a, or a collective of individuals um, across uh, out the continent of Africa and in the diaspora who are interested in um, urbanism in Africa and, and advancing that.
0: So where, where do they go to find out more about it?
3: Um, Afro urban on, on Twitter. Uh, my Twitter is also not, uh, sorry, at not and,
0: and by the way, a story that just broke earlier today, square has invested or actually bought a company out of Lagos in Nigeria. I'll be talking about that story tomorrow. Incredibly, incredibly, incredibly hot market. And Kate, where can they send out picks? Let's get right to the good Al picks. They have to be quality people. Gifts are, or gifs are actually better, but the best place,
1: uh, probably Twitter. To be honest, I try and keep my my LinkedIn Al free, um, but Twitter, go for it. Uh, K eight Moody, uh, and on LinkedIn, uh, Kate Moody.
0: Um, as for me, folks, it's Sam Mall. Feel free to send me Al gifs. I do like them. That's Owls, not Al. Owl. O W L. I don't need pictures of somebody named Al. Um, and thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to leave us a review. It helps us to make it better. Helps others find the show. Um, A little tip, make it five stars, you know, don't don't waste your time. Just go right to the five, click on it. Five is good. Um, Talk about how incredible Kate and Guerra are, Simon, um, you know, say something nice about David. We'll appreciate it. We all do. As always, if you want to join the conversation, find us on social media, just search for 11FS or FinTech Insider or email podcast at 11FS.com. That's it for today, everybody. Thanks for being here.